Good morning. Happy Easter. He is risen. How's everybody doing? How's everybody doing? Two years ago, we had our first service in this building with a guitar tucked into a corner room back over there. And today, look what God has done. And look what God is doing here. It's beautiful. It is Easter. It is the best day of the year. And we are here to celebrate it. Jesus is king and our king is alive. Kids, we're happy to have you guys in the service. Do you guys all have your bulletins out? Because you know when we have kids in the service what that means. You should have kids' bulletins in there, yeah? Yeah, no, I think you got something. You should have something in there. The way it works, if you're new, we have kids in the service on special days. Is there a more special day than Easter? There's not. There's not. Okay, well, look, if you don't have a bulletin in your bag, just use your color sheet, okay? Okay, because the way it works, when we have kids in the service, we have bulletins that are designed to help the kids follow along with the service, with the preaching of the word. They fill it out, and they get a special secret surprise that's not a secret. It is candy. That's right. Definitely not any leftover Halloween candy whatsoever. Definitely not that. (laughs) Is it? (laughs) Don't tell on me. (laughs) We got some other special things thrown in there this week, too. I think we got some Easter stickers in there, so that should be fun. Okay. Is that good news? Candy's good news, right? Yeah. We're here to celebrate other good news because today is a day of good news. And the last couple of years have felt like a lot, a lot, a lot of bad, bad news. Tell me I'm wrong. What kind of bad news have we been dealing with the last couple of years? Pandemic, lockdown, shutdown, election, economy, World War III, the aliens are coming, (laughs) all kinds of things. We're all going to die. Our country is going to die. Our bank accounts are going to die. Everything's going bad. Even at Augusta National, I've never been to Eden, but when I think of Eden, you know, Eden's gone. I think of Augusta National. Even Augusta National, the trees are falling down. Major League Baseball has instituted a pitch clock, and that's how we know we're definitely living in the last days. It's horrible. The end is near. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt are everywhere you turn out there, right? Some of it's real. Some of it's fake news. Like the pitch clock. Fake news. In here we have good news. Good news that is true, eternally true, because we have a good king and our king is risen. He's alive. Jesus is our king. He conquered sin and death and hell so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could have a relationship with God and be adopted into God's family so that God could be our father in heaven, no matter what our earthly father was like, good, bad, indifferent. We can be reconciled to the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. We can know the love of God. We don't have to be afraid of anything if God is our Father. Nothing in this life, nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God if we're in Christ, if we belong to Him. And that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks as, we, as we've studied Romans. So today is a good day. Today, we're going to be talking about five reasons 
you should believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Five reasons. You ready? Reason number one, it was all part of the plan. It was always part of the plan. Jesus' resurrection was prophesied about in Scripture for hundreds and thousands of years before it ever happened. And Jesus himself told us it would happen. In the Garden of Eden, our first parents, Adam and Eve, took the forbidden fruit from a forbidden tree. Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam followed after Eve. They both ate, and when they did that, they brought sin and death to the human race. They brought sin and death into the world. There's a reason that death feels unnatural and wrong. There's a reason it feels like it's not quite right. How many of you have lost a loved one in the past year? Somebody close to you. Lots of us, right? Lots of us. Just yesterday, uh, Peter came home from his baseball practice, or baseball game, and he, he was telling us that in the, in the middle of the game, towards the end of the game, one of his coaches got the news that his dad died in an accident. Death is coming for all of us. Some of us, it's coming slowly, and some of us, it's going to come suddenly, and there's no way to know. There's no way to know, except that it is coming. It's coming for all of us. It is the enemy that hangs over all of our heads. And it does feel wrong. And it feels wrong because it is wrong. It is not natural. Right before Christmas, my Nana died. Um, and last night, I drove my family to my parents' house for Easter. And as we pulled into the drive, I thought, huh, no, no, no. Two nights ago, this was. Whatever, it doesn't matter. As we pulled into the drive, I thought, oh, Nana's been out mowing the grass. Looks great. I hope she's taking care of herself. And I knew what I was thinking as it happened. Like, I knew what I was doing. I knew the thought I was having was wrong, but I had it anyway. Couldn't help myself. And, and on some level, I've stopped fighting those kinds of thoughts. I don't think it's denial. I know that she's dead. It's sad. I accept it. I just don't accept that it's right. I just don't accept that it's good. I just don't accept that's the way things are supposed to be. That urge that you feel to call up that person that you love that died, as if they should still be there, I think that's real because they should still be there. Your dad should still be there, but he's not. Because death is an enemy. And that's what happened at the tree in the Garden of Eden. That's where God stepped in and delivered to us the curse that we deserve, that cursed the whole world. And then he made a promise that he was going to reverse and undo everything that we have done. He's going to undo it all. And here it is. Here's the promise, the very first promise as delivered to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It doesn't seem like much, but it's all right there, all of it. It's veiled, but it's there. Because on a different tree, in a different garden, the chosen offspring of Eve, Jesus, was bruised. And in his bruising, he crushed the head of the snake, and he began to undo the wreckage of the fall. He began to undo sin and death. 
Flash forward then to Noah. Do you guys all know the story of Noah? We all know the story of Noah and the ark, right? Noah was living in a time of great chaos and madness and evil, and for all kinds of reasons, God decided that it was time to bring judgment onto the world. He decided it was time to submerge the earth in the waters of judgment. There will be death, and on the other side of this world's baptism, there will be new life. Old world, cleansed through water, and raised to new life. Noah and his family preserved through it all in the ark of in the ark and set on a mountain to start a new humanity in a new earth, a cleansed earth. And when Noah came out of that ark, God made a covenant with him, and this is what he said. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And God said to Noah and his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth." And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. This is a renewal of the covenant God made with Adam at the time when the earth was first created. It's a picture of death and resurrection. It's a picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus and what was to come and what is still to come. It's a clearer picture. Flash forward to Abraham and his beloved son Isaac. Do you remember, do you remember that story? You do? Good. Abraham and Sarah had to wait forever for a child. God had promised them a child, a son. God had made promises about that son. That the Christ, the Messiah, would come. He would establish Abraham's household so much that he would become the father of many nations, that through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed through this one son, and that one son's name was Isaac, and he came. And so God was going to change the world through Isaac. All of his promises were bound up in Isaac. Isaac was precious to his parents, the child of their old age. And so one day God says to Abraham, I want you to take Isaac up onto a mountain. And when you get there, I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice him to me. Okay, how many parents are on board with that? The Bible says that Abraham, after all that he had suffered and all that he had seen God do, all the ways he had seen God fulfill his promises, Abraham had such faith in the promises of God to him about Isaac that he believed that if God really meant for Isaac to die, then God also meant to raise Isaac from the dead. 
Because all of God's promises are that true. So Abraham, as an old man, over 100 years old, loads the wood for the sacrifice onto Isaac's shoulders. Isaac carries the wood for his own sacrifice up onto a mountain on a three-day journey. All of these details matter. It says, I, we got the wood, we've, we've gone up on the mountain. Dad, where is the lamb for slaughtering? Abraham says, God will provide. And what happens? Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. On the mount of the Lord it was provided. God gave Isaac back as from the dead. And what happens instead? There's a ram. His horns are caught in a thorn bush, wrapped up in a crown of thorns. And they sacrifice the ram in the place of Isaac, in the place of Abraham's son, his only son. That is a clearer picture, isn't it? And there are more pictures that we see. We could talk about Jonah spending three days in the belly of the whale. Or we could talk about very specific, direct things that God says, like in Psalm 16, where King David prophesies this about Jesus. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This is about the resurrection. Or how about Jesus himself? In Mark chapter 10, he says this. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. He told them. He told them all. And everybody knew that he told them. That's why they set guards on the tomb, because they were afraid of what was going to happen. None of this happened by accident. All of this was planned. All of this was planned, and everything went according to plan. This is not a a contrived backstory. This is just the way it was supposed to go. So what happened? Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was born as a man, and he lived on the earth for around 33 years. Those last three years of his life, he spent preaching and ministering and loving and caring for the poor and the needy and the weak those who were afflicted. He called out the corrupt. He called everyone to repent and to walk in obedience to God. And ultimately, he claimed to be the Son of God. And the religious establishment, together in conspiracy with the Roman government, conspired to execute him and put him to death. And so he carried the wood for the sacrifice himself on his own back up the hill. And there he tasted death. He ate the fruit of the fall. No voice from heaven called out to stop the sacrifice. He was the lamb for the sacrifice. He was the lamb that God had provided. His hands and feet were pierced. They stabbed him in his heart to be sure he was dead. 
Then they took his body down and they sealed it in a tomb, the tomb of a well-known rich man in a public place. They sealed it. They put the seal of the Roman government on top of it. They posted a guard there 24-7 to guard it to be sure nothing happened because everybody knew he had promised to come back. This is all prophecy. This is all what the Scriptures had said and proclaimed would happen. And that brings us to reason number two, the empty tomb. Here's a fact that cannot be denied. No one knows where in the world Jesus' body is or how to find it. Nobody. We know where Muhammad is buried. We know where Abraham is buried. We know where the Buddha is buried. There are shrines where the bodies of these great prophets of old are buried. People make pilgrimage to see them. Nobody makes pilgrimage to see the body of Jesus. Nobody knows where it's buried because it's not there. The tomb's empty. No one knows where in the world the body of Jesus is because the body of Jesus is not in this world. Now, there are three basic ways to make sense of this. The first is that, and this was the story that was passed around at the time, that the disciples somehow must have overcome the Roman guards and broken the seal and rolled away the stone themselves and stole the body and lied about it, and nobody ever, ever found out. And they got away with it. And the government didn't come and track them down. And nobody ever told. There's some problems with that story. First, the Roman soldiers were not slouches. And the disciples were cowards. They all abandoned Jesus and they all ran away. They're not the kind of people who are ready to go and take, take down the Roman soldiers and steal the body. And you can't, you can't assume, you can't think they, what, they fell asleep and then they rolled away the great big stone. It just nothing works about that story. These men were under strict orders to guard that tomb with their lives. And they were professional soldiers. Okay, so that's one reason that story doesn't hold up. Second, there's no minority report in early Christianity. No one says he died and stayed dead, and we're going to protect his body and enshrine it, or we're going to keep to his teaching, or there's some people that made up a story, but we don't. None of that exists in early Christianity. Nothing. There's no conflict. There's no debate. There's no minority report. There's no one in the early church questioning the resurrection, and there are reasons for that that we'll get to in a minute. Okay? Now, there's a second story. That's the first story people tell to try to make sense of where's Jesus' body. There's a second story that people try to tell. And it goes like this. Well, maybe Jesus didn't actually die. Maybe he just sort of passed out up there on the cross. And he was mistaken for being dead. Here's the problem. He was on the cross and he died and then they stabbed him in the heart to be sure he was dead. And then they brought him down from the cross And they wrapped him in burial clothes with spices that weighed probably about 100 pounds. And they put him in a tomb without food or water and sealed it up. And he stayed there for three days without food or water. And the story you're supposed to believe 
is that after being crucified and tortured in the most horrific way possible and stabbed through the heart and wrapped up in 100 pounds of clothes and spices and left in a tomb without food or water for three days, somehow he came to, ripped off the clothes, broke the seal from the inside, rolled away the tomb himself, overcame the guards and went around showing everybody that he's just fine. Stupid. That's really dumb. That's really dumb. How about this? Maybe it happened the way the Bible says it happened. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And that brings us to reason number three, the witnesses. Nothing about what happens next makes any sense whatsoever unless it actually happened. Everything just goes nuts from here on out. Because Jesus is seen by the women... He's seen by his disciples. Thomas, who we read about earlier, comes up and puts his fingers in the holes. Jesus then goes around teaching his disciples and being seen for 40 days. He eats with them. He shows up on the shore of the lake, the sea. At one time, he appears to more than 500 people at once. And this is all written and recorded in the New Testament when all these people are still alive. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says this, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What he's saying is there are, there's all kinds of people. You can just go talk to people who saw him. There's hundreds of them. They're alive right now. You can go talk to them. And in other words, as the early church was formed, there were first-person witnesses to the resurrection everywhere. That's why there's no minority report. Tons of people actually saw Jesus alive. And if you weren't one of them yourself, it wasn't hard to find somebody who was. And that's what was so powerful about the preaching of the apostles. That's why Peter could stand up on the day of Pentecost and preach the way that he did. And this is the sermon 
a part of the sermon that he delivered that day after Jesus had ascended into heaven. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. That's what we just read. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, this is still Peter talking. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Like all heroes, we know where they're buried. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In that day, thousands of people were converted and baptized. Thousands. They believed the testimony. Why? Because none of it happened in the dark. Everybody knew what was going on. This was the story that made sense of all they had seen and heard. And that's why it says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They knew what they had done. They knew what had happened. And they knew there was no denying it. Peter just says, the Messiah came to you. You crucified him and God raised him from the dead. And now what are you going to do? And they said, what are we going to do? Brothers, what must we do to be saved? And he says, repent and believe and be baptized. And they do because they're cornered. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Reason number four. And speaking of Peter, the disciples themselves, these were ordinary men. These were fishermen. These were tax collectors. They were not special men. They were very weak men, in fact, like lots of us. Peter had played the coward just on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He was boxed into a corner and allowed himself to deny Jesus three times because he was afraid of a little slave girl. Everybody ran that night. Everybody stayed on the run and in hiding until Jesus rose. On the day of Pentecost, just 40 days later, Peter stood up in front of the crowd of people, of thousands of people, and said that, said, you crucified him, he is Lord, he is risen. The same Peter that cowered before the slave girl. Something happened. 
All of the disciples, everyone who claimed to have seen Jesus became like lions for the sake of the gospel. They became martyrs. They were killed. They were tortured. They suffered. They went to the ends of the earth to preach and proclaim what had happened. You don't make up a story about somebody rising from the dead and spend the rest of your life traveling around to convince people of it, suffering, getting beaten and tortured, thrown in prison and eventually killed. You just don't do that. And they all did it. Every one of them did it. Nobody backed out and said, this is insane and stupid. They all all doubled down. Why? Because it happened and they encountered the risen Jesus. That's why. There's no other explanation of it. Peter himself, at the end of his life, was crucified. And he asked to be crucified, according to church history, the records that we have, he asked to be crucified upside down because he was unworthy to follow Jesus in the manner of his death. Who makes up a story like that and suffers like that? Even Paul the apostle. He was an enemy of the church. He was a murderer. He was a man who threw families into prison for believing in Jesus until Jesus showed up on the side of the road. And Paul met Jesus. And Paul's life changed. And he went from being a persecutor to being persecuted. He became a man on fire, working to establish Jesus' church. And that brings us to our fifth reason, the final one, and that's the church itself. It's still here. We're still here. God's people are still here. The church is still growing in the whole world. Why is that? Because nothing else makes better sense of the world than the good news of what Jesus has done. Nothing. Sin is real. We all do things that hurt ourselves and each other. We all do things that hurt ourselves and those we love best. All of us. All of us have bad consciences. We know we're not right. We know things aren't right. Many of you lie awake on your bed at night and are sometimes overwhelmed by a sense of guilt and shame, a bad conscience. Or you've spent years trying to bury those feelings or trying to drink them away, or trying to deny them or deal with them, but they're there. The reality of sin is as undeniable as gravity. We don't have to like it, but what goes up must come down. And people are sinners. It's just the way it is. We all have done things that we're ashamed of. And we all know deep down that death is wrong, too, and it's not natural. And we all long for something more and something better and something bigger and something worth living for. Something that feels forever outside of our reach, forever beyond our grasp. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus, explains it all. Adam sinned, we sinned. Adam died, we died. We need a new Adam. His name is Jesus. We need a new start. We need to go from death to life. We need resurrection. This is what Jesus did. Jesus is the perfect, eternal Son of God. He became man, and He died the death that we deserve. 
He bore the condemnation and punishment that we deserve. He stands to offer grace to all who will repent of their sins and come to him. You come to him, you bring your sin, your guilt, and your shame. He takes it on himself on the cross and he gives you his grace. He welcomes you into his family. He forgives you and cleanses you of sin. For 2,000 years, the church of God has been built on that foundation. Jesus rose from the dead. And so from a little place on the other side of the world in, a, in Palestine to a cornfield on another continent, on another side of the world, we gather to celebrate the risen king. We've been doing it here for two years. Because Jesus changes everything. Jesus has changed everything. He's changed the world. And everywhere the gospel has spread and the church has taken root, whole cultures have been transformed for good, for better. Even while at the same time, the world continues to unite itself to try to stop the advance of God's kingdom, God's kingdom is unstoppable. It cannot be stopped. The Roman Empire tried to stamp out Christianity, and what happened? The Roman Empire got stamped out. It's gone. The great Caesars are done. Jesus is still king. His kingdom is forever, and here we are. We are the proof of it. Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And the church has been assaulting the gates of hell ever since and winning because Jesus wins. Everywhere Jesus goes, Jesus wins. Every king that raises his hand against the king of kings bows the knee. Jesus wins. The world has been transformed and the world is being transformed. And around you right now in this room as we speak, people are being transformed. People have been transformed. And there's no other explanation for the lives of the people in this room, then Jesus rose from the dead. They met Jesus. They once were something different. You were once something different, and now you're something new. You met Jesus and you experienced the power of his resurrection. And there's no other explanation for you there's no ex other explanation for where you're at. And if, you, if that's not you, if you've not experienced that, people around you have and you can talk to them. They will tell you what they were before and what they are now. And they'll tell you there is no explanation, but Jesus did it. I'll close with this. My parents divorced when I was six. I grew up in a broken home. My dad remarried. I love my dad. I love my mom. I love my stepmom. They all did the best they could. But divorce is not health, and it's not a setup for success. Sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's inevitable, just like all kinds of things in this world are that are not the way things should be. Too many of you in this room know that firsthand. I don't know when I actually met Jesus. Could have been when I was really little, what I do know is that about the time I turned 17, I started to deal with God and God started to deal with me. 
And I had to figure myself out and decide what kind of life I was going to live. I, decided, I had to decide if I was going to live for me, if I was going to live for God. He boxed me into a corner. And my life changed. He changed my life. I broke up with my girlfriend. I separated myself from friends who were doing drugs and partying and drinking on the weekends. I stopped going to the parties. I started a Bible study at school. I started skipping lunch to go read the Bible to try to figure things out. All I knew is that if I was going to become the kind of man that God was calling me to be, things had to change. I needed to change. The change had to happen from the inside out. I needed to deal with my life. I needed to deal with my sin. I needed to heal from some things. I needed to grow. I was baptized. I committed myself to a church. I trained for ministry. I got married. We started having kids. And now we've been married, Amanda and I, for 16 years. And we have seven kids. And I'm the pastor of a church, which was never the plan. And there's no explanation for that but Jesus. I'd, uh, I, uh, I would have never married Amanda. And if I had, we wouldn't have made it. I know who I was. I know the direction I was headed. There's no explanation for any of this, except Jesus. I would have wrecked it all. I would have wrecked it all by now. It didn't matter all the good things my parents gave me. I would have found a way to ruin it. Jesus saved me. Now, that's not the most dramatic testimony in this room. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. The question is, what story is God calling you to right now? Is he calling you to repent and leave your former life behind? Is he calling you to come and follow Jesus? I'll answer that question for you. The answer is yes. Yeah, that's why you're here. That's why you're here this morning. That's why he brought you here. He brought you here because he means to change you. He brought you here because he means to work in your heart and in your life. So I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to see you back here next week. And if you have something you need to talk about, I'm going to be right back there in the back. You can come talk to me doesn't matter what it is. Your soul, your pain, the sermon, your sin, Jesus. That's what we're here for. Anybody you've seen this morning up front, you can talk to. Bart, Nathan, Ben. That's what we're here for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for every single person you brought here this morning. I know that some here are grieving the loss of loved ones. I know others this morning are grieving their sin. I know that there are some here who may be on the brink of surrendering their lives to you. Each of us needs you, Father. We all need forgiveness for sin.
We need help. We need the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Would you work this morning through the preaching of the word, through the singing of song, to work the wonder of the resurrection into each of our hearts? Would you change and transform our lives, heal us, forgive us of sin, draw each of us to you? Father, we love you. We thank you for sending Jesus to die for our sins and for raising him up from the grave to sit at your right hand. Thank you for giving us a king that we can worship. We worship him now. In Jesus' name, amen.